remarkable to me this morning that um, though I chose the rubrics and seeing even more and more of the conquering king in the hymns that we've sung and the prayers, even the prayer we've just prayed, our Lord Jesus is king. Matthew chapter 27, we return there this morning, picking up at verse 50. This is at page 835 in your pew Bible, in case that's helpful to you. This, uh, by the way, just might be of interest to you. It was to me when I stopped to, to check it. This is our 113th installment in Matthew's Gospel since we started this series three years ago, last Sunday in August of 2019. I trust and pray that it's been as much a blessing to you as it's been to me. When we left off last week, uh, Jesus was still alive on the cross, you might remember. We considered his cry of dereliction in the darkness and his passage into hell for us and on our behalf, in our place, suffering his forsakenness of his Father, remarking that though we can say such words as that, we hardly begin to understand them. The penalty that was due for us, uh, due us for our sin but suffered instead by him in our place. Well, today we come to Jesus' last breath on the cross and the immediate uh, visible effects of his death that left those who saw them at the time nearly breathless. May what we're about to read have its rightful effect on our hearts this morning. Father, we... Thank you for preserving these historical facts uh, in your word for us, in your inspired and inerrant word and infallible. That's our confidence as we go now to it. We're listening not just for the words of man now, we're listening for the voice of God. By your grace, may we hear it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. 
I want to return to those women another day, the Lord willing, for this morning our eyes are still fixed on the cross and the mighty events that reverberate from the cry of Jesus at the end of his passion. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now we've already heard him cry last week, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now his voice is heard again before yielding up his spirit. Now notice the language here. He yielded up his spirit. One more time, we are reminded by the gospel writers that Jesus, though he truly suffered on the cross more terribly than we can imagine, nonetheless suffered sovereignly. This cross work of Jesus is deliberate. The shepherd laying down his life for his sheep, even to the last moment, with purposeful intention and intentionality. He gives it. He, as Isaiah put it in Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul down even to the very last breath, which now he, as it were, hands obediently to his Father. What was that last cry? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but uh, John does. It is finished. It is finished. Yes, it was a raw cry of agony of his humanity, but it's also a statement of plain fact, isn't it? The suffering is finally finished. The price is paid. And do you not hear as well there in that cry, a cry of victory as well? If you do, you are far from alone. One prominent commentator observes here that Jesus dies a victor with a shout of triumph on his lips. It is finished. And that victory is demonstrated by what happens next, or immediately, I guess. It, it's a, it, it is a staccato list that sounds like cannon fire, doesn't it, in a 21-gun salute. The temple curtain is for, torn from top to bottom. There's an earthquake. The rocks are splitting. The rock-hewn tombs as well are splitting open, allowing dead saints to emerge from those tombs three days later. It may have been a lamb's sacrifice, but it is a lion's victory kingly victory that took place on the cross of Jesus. <laughs> Rightly did that centurion and those others with him in charge of this entire event exclaim, surely this was the Son of God. As Jesus gives up his spirit and exhales his last breath, 
This is not the scene of defeat. Far from it, dear flock, this is a scene of royal triumph. And Matthew does not want you to miss it. It's a scene of victory over sin. It's a a scene of victory over death. Maybe you notice the ancient Christian symbol we carefully chose for the cover, uh, the front of your bulletins this morning. By taking the first and last letters of Jesus' name in the Greek, the Yoda and the Sigma, in the upper left, and the chi, uh, and, um, and uh, sigma in the right, Christos, Christ, and adding the word below, nika, the Greek word for conquers, and the cross in the middle, all together what we have, what our fathers and, the mo- and mothers in the faith who invented this symbol meant to convey was early what was early understood that Jesus Christ has conquered by the cross. Christ Jesus conquered by the cross. He conquers. He has won the victory. Victory over what? Matthew intends to show us by recording the earthquake, he's, he's informing us that Jesus' victory is a seismic, it's a cosmic Event. It's a cosmic victory. And by these other two signs, he means to convey to us Jesus' victory over sin and Jesus' victory over death. First, this morning, note Jesus' victory over sin at the cross. His victory over sin. Now, only a few of you here uh, this morning will remember back to the days when Rich and Ramona Wagner were our missionaries to Columbia. They were an adventurous couple, to say the least, as you might imagine. After they were driven by guerrilla fighters from Colombia, they were our missionaries for some time to Mexico and then to Peru. I will always remember uh, Rich Wagner's testimony. I grew up in the church, Rich wrote and told us about. We went every Sunday morning and evening. In all those years, I never remember hearing the name of Jesus mentioned except in cursing. I remember hearing about how Christians were supposed to have peace, joy, and love in their lives. I didn't know what it meant to be a Christian. I sure didn't have peace, joy, or love in my life. What I had was guilt, grief, hurt. And horrible nightmares. The nightmares seemed to get worse and worse almost every night. I knew the root of my problems when I was very young. There was an accident in our home and I killed my younger brother. This was the root of my problems. And God couldn't help. I believed I'd done something even God couldn't forgive. In an effort to relieve my guilt, the grief and hurt, I played judo and football in high school, thinking that these macho activities would somehow cleanse me of my sin. Upon graduation, still lacking the cleansing I sorely needed, I joined the Marine Corps. The Marines, being the strongest, the toughest of the armed forces, surely would give me the help I needed. I was first a recon Marine, the toughest of the tough. 
but the hurt still continued. I was then sent to Memphis, Tennessee to attend an electronics technician school to prepare me to work on a computer system on a spy plane, an EA-6A intruder jet. While attending the school, I heard about a place in downtown Memphis where they had free food and pretty girls to entertain the servicemen. Sounded like a good deal for a 17-year-old Marine far from home. So a group of us Marines decided to go to this place, fully intending to kick out any sailors who may have been there. We were, after all, Marines. We finally found the place, the Memphis Servicemen Center, and they did have free food and pretty girls. Ramona was one of them. But all they wanted to do was talk about the Bible. Nothing else. I didn't want to hear anything about salvation, but I kept going back <laughs> to see this one redhead, Ramona. Besides what I had done, even God couldn't forgive. I kept going back over and over again to see Ramona. Finally, I was in a church service with Ramona, the only date she would allow, when God broke through all my barriers and spoke to my heart. He said, I can forgive even that. That was November 10, 1968. I asked Christ to come into my life and forgive me for all my sins, including that of killing my brother. And he did. He came and washed away all my guilt, grief, hurt, and nightmares. <laughs> it felt like a fire hose flushing out my spirit, and my life was changed for eternity. Dear flock, when Jesus died on the cross, a very remarkable thing happened. I don't mean the darkness, though that was quite remarkable, wasn't it, that we saw last week. What I'm referring to is something that was not witnessed by the eyes of those who were gathered at Golgotha, at Calvary, just outside of the city where Jesus was crucified. This happened inside Jerusalem, inside the temple. At that moment that Jesus breathed his last, the huge and very thick curtain in the temple was torn in two and torn from top to bottom. Those of you who know your Old Testament history will immediately recognize exactly what he's referring to. The most holy place, or as those of us who cut our teeth on the King James Version uh, knew it, the Holy of Holies, was an interior room deepest inside the tabernacle and later the temple separated at its entrance from the rest of the temple by a veil some 60 feet high, 60 feet and maybe 20 feet wide and very thick. One historian says that it was as thick as the breadth of a man's hand. Another said that you could harness horses if you'd like to each side of it. It could not have been pulled apart. 
There behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant and the golden cherubim with their wings outstretched toward one another over the mercy seat. We remember how people would become sick, how people died for mishandling the Ark of the Covenant. And and now that covenant is stationed there in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies in the temple. And to step into that Holy of Holies, that most holy place, without authorization from God meant certain and immediate death. Only the high priest was allowed to go in there, and that only once a year. It was an elaborate ceremony. You can read about it if you like this afternoon in Leviticus 16. And those of you who know your Old Testament theology as well as its history will know that ceremony, uh, how it functioned in the lives of and the consciousness of the people who witnessed it, but always, of course, and only from a distance or, or just hearing about it, actually, from, from the outer courts. It was a profound demonstration of two fundamental truths of the Christian faith. First, the absolute holiness of God. And second, in light of that pure holiness, our devastating guilt and its consequences. The most holy place, that part of the temple closed off by that great curtain, was the premier symbol in the Old Testament of the holiness of God. And it was that holiness, God's glorious purity, that made it utterly and everlastingly impossible that sinful men and women could make themselves right with Him, could make ourselves right with God, or somehow try to curry His favor. Now, we could try, but not succeed. That's why they could never get into that most holy place. That was the point. The elaborate ritual of the temple is that demonstration to our consciences of this fact that sinners could never be right with God. Never, apart from the satisfaction, that is, of God's holiness. That's what Rich Wagner knew by experience. That's what he was experiencing, right? even if he did not fully understand it before his conversion. His sin, so great, greater than anything for which he could make atonement, had to be dealt with somehow. Because God is holy, impeccably holy, as the angels cry out to one another in his presence even right now. Holy, holy, holy. The curtain itself, which separated the people from God's holiness, was a powerful and clear sign of this central fact of human existence. God is holy and we are unholy. And as a result, there is an impenetrable wall between us and God that can never be broken down. Not by mere man, that is. And must remain forever closed against us unless and until God's holiness has been fully and completely satisfied. That's where the priest comes in, ceremonially speaking, and what the priest brought into that 
holy place, the holy of holies, once a year. You remember what it was. What did he carry in there? Blood. Blood. God's holiness, his just holiness, requires a just punishment for sin. And blood means death. We sinned, and someone had to die. Someone was going to die for your sin. Someone had to die. This is God, the thrice holy. If the ritual of the temple, not just yearly, uh, as in this case, uh, the priest going in once a year, but outside of the holy of holies in the courtyard, the slaying of bowl after bowl after bowl and goat after goat, day after day after bloody day, conveyed anything at all. If any message was perfectly clear as they came to the temple and saw those priests soaked in blood from slaying one animal after another after another, for the people of God, if anything was perfectly clear, it is this, the wages of sin is death. But it also taught this, my sin can be taken by a substitute. That was the point. My sin can be taken by someone else in my place. Do you remember what they did before they killed those animals? Do you remember what the worshipers did? They put their hands on the animal's head. And then it was slain. Now why? Well, it was an act of transferring their sins to the animal. That was the symbol, the point. It was a sacramental action to be sure. No amount of blood of bulls or goats could actually carry away their sins, but it was a powerful sacrament, wasn't it? Just as this, these are powerful sacraments today, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The point was that someone had to die for my sins, that either we or a substitute in our place must die if we have any hope at all of being made right with God whose eyes are too pure even to look upon iniquity. And that's exactly what happened, you see. Precisely what happened at the cross. And that's why the impenetrable curtain was torn in two from top to bottom to, so that nobody could make a mistake how this happened. Only God's hands could take that massive curtain and tear it from the top to the bottom as Jesus breathed his last when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. A way has been opened for us to come to God. Someone has gone through that curtain on 
our behalf, on your behalf and mine. And what is more, he has taken us by the hand and led us through that curtain with him. That remarkable fact is celebrated in the letter to the Hebrews, remember. I read this week that the entire book of Hebrews, this might be an exaggeration, but but it was an interesting observation that the entire book of Hebrews is really a story about the torn curtain. We read this in that letter. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the victory over sin, you see, and its power to keep us separated from God that Jesus accomplished at the cross. He defeated sin. He opened the way to God through his own flesh, torn like that curtain was, torn there on the cross. And he continues to bring people to God by that power, through his victory, his cleansing, conquering, powerful, victorious cross. That's what Rich Wagner described, like the washing away of his sins by the force, as it were, of a fire hose. Dear friends, and I mean those of you who remain this morning still outside of Christ. Are you crushed in the knowledge, in the thoughts of your sinfulness before the face of the thrice holy God? Do you see your own vileness before the God whose eyes are too pure even to look upon your iniquity? And is it absolutely devastating to you? Good. Praise be to God. Blessed are you. Because a guilty conscience is a great blessing. It is. But if and only if it drives you to your knees before God where it can be once and for all cleansed of its guilt. If you've come this morning, maybe in the hearing even of this, these very words, to a, to, a, to a real sense now of the holiness of God, of the vileness of your sin, of your guilt before Him, of your infinite separation from Him because of your sin, just like it did our friend Rich Wagner and brother in the Lord, then you are finally and you're finally ready. You're finally ready for the great message of the torn curtain. As one modern theologian put it, we learn to appreciate access to God, which Christ has won for us, only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry hallelujah with authenticity, authenticity only after we have first cried, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
There is a sacrifice that can bring you into a right relationship with God that can bring you into the holy of holies through the curtain into fellowship with him in happy relationship to God. And even as those words cross my lips, I think of the wonder of a happy relationship to God. Is it possible? Can it be? Yes. And it's not through a goat. And it's not through a bull. But it is through a lamb. The lamb. The capital L lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the one who has gone victoriously for you through that curtain before you to open the way for you. It's what he has done, you see. It's all of what he has done, not what you have done. All of his grace, nothing of you. What do you bring to this transaction? Only one thing, your sin. On the cross, our great high priest, not now with blood in hand, but blood flowing from his hands and his feet. Not only passed through the curtain, he tore it. <laughs> he opened the way so that, so that he might lead us into the loving presence of God and holy. Nothing less than that was required and necessary for you and for me to come to God, to draw near to God with sincere hearts, full assurance. It's marvelous ways the Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews writes, the sincere hearts, full assurance of faith. We'll come back to that tonight from Philippians. Now hold on to that hope, Christians. The hope that you profess. Hold it unswervingly. For he who promised is faithful. I give you only the first page of Richard's testimony. The rest of it reads like an action-adventure story of <laughs> Indiana Jones proportions. But in context of Christian missions with bold prayer. With bold service. And the story, as exciting as it is, it's peppered with poisonous snake bites in the jungle and emergency airlifts and broken ribs and severed fingers and a crocodile once almost eating rich alive and murder threats and near kidnappings, overnight exiles under the cover of darkness, huge and noble sacrifices for the kingdom. And through the work of it all, literally hundreds of lives won to the Lord, and as generations rise one after another in Colombia, in Peru, in Mexico, thousands and thousands, who knows how many more, and the adventure continues, and it will continue for all eternity into the holiest of holy places, into the very presence of the holy God himself. Why? How? Because by the grace of God, a 17-year-old Marine who found himself face to standing face to face with that impenetrable curtain between himself and God, had that curtain torn right before him and followed Jesus by faith 
from the cross through that curtain. May it please God that the same thing can be said of every single one of you. That you have passed from the cross through the curtain to God. May it please God that it is true for us all. And that's possible only because there is a second but related victory that Matthew shows us here in the gospel. And it is, it's our Savior's victory over death. Verse 52. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now that tantalizing piece of history is recorded in only one place in the whole Bible. And we just read it in Matthew's Gospel. And reading it, of course, raises more questions than it answers, doesn't it? We, we want to know, you know, how many How many of the saints were raised and appeared in Jerusalem? Were they the ones, the saints from long past? Or or were these uh, saints who had had died just recently, suddenly appearing? You know, Uncle Uncle Joe (laughs) walks up to you on on the street. He's been dead for three months, but here he is. My sister Flo, she's walking down the street to greet me. And, And then we want to know what happened to them later, right? Did they die again, like we presume Lazarus did after having been raised? Or were they glorified? You know, did they ascend and join Jesus and Enoch and Elijah, now bodily in heaven? Are there a whole bunch of people bodily in heaven right now? I think we could multiply the questions, couldn't we? Of course, that's not the point. And that's why Matthew doesn't answer those questions. He's not interested in that. The point is the rending of the tombs when Jesus breathed his last on the cross and the raising of the bodies of many saints on that third day, on Resurrection Sunday, is the demonstration of the fact of Jesus' victory over death on the cross. He conquered death by his death. That's the point. As the prince of the Puritans, John Owen, once described it, this was the death of death in the death of Christ. Jesus defeated death by his death. Or as Augustine once put it wonderfully, his death killed death. Because of Jesus' death, dear ones, because of his victorious death on the cross, death itself is dead to you and to me. And all of those who are by faith in Christ. That is to say, it's terror. It's dead. It's finality. It's sting, to use the Apostle Paul's expression, is gone. Death has lost all of those things for you who are in Christ Jesus. Death itself is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's good for us. It's good for our souls 
from time to time to take a stroll through the cemetery. I heartily recommend this to you. It's good because there, as you walk among the dead and the saints who've fallen asleep, we come face to face with ultimate realities. Yes, death is still our enemy, but it is a defeated foe. It's toothless. As you walk among those tombs, remind yourself and maybe let your sanctified imagination fly to the day when they burst from those tombs like they did there in Jerusalem and its environs. Like them, they, and we will rise bodily from the grave. Let the Lord tarry first. I can't walk through a cemetery without imagining myself there. And sooner than I imagine, buried with them. But we will not stay there, will we? We know the power of the great resurrection to come. And we know it because Matthew shows it to us here. Doesn't it? It's like, it's like Matthew can't wait for Easter. You know, <laughs> he can't wait for resurrection. He's got to tell us about it when Jesus dies, right? He's got to bring this history earlier. The power of Jesus' death. Jesus' death. Fix this in your minds now. Jesus' death is a resurrecting death. The dead are revived by his dying. As he passes from life to death, they pass from death to life. So both sin and death, the two greatest problems of your life and of all of humanity, sin and death, both have been conquered by Jesus at the cross. This has led some people even to to say such things as this, that they view the cross not so much anymore as a cursed tree, though it certainly is that. Not so much a cursed tree, but a fruit tree because it produces the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, sooner than any of us imagines, dear ones, We're going to face our own death. It's coming. Hear me and mark these words. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Your captain your king has already gone there before you and he has defeated it. He's defeated that foe for you. He died victorious. Jesus Christ conquers by the cross so that you may die victorious as well. You will not die in defeat. 
when you take your last breath, it will be the breath of victory. Because he has gone before victorious. And on that day of your death, in a sense you will have nothing. Naked you came from your mother's womb. Naked will you depart. I say you will have nothing, and yet you will have everything. Because death will find your heart saying, just as you did in life, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross. 